Welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, where we hope to bring you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson. I'm here once again with my co-host, Carly Harrod. Hi, Carly. Hi, Andy. So today we're at one of our small woodland sites in the north of the county called Herbert Plantation. And that is a long way from where I live. Yeah, we're right up in the far north, absolutely. I mean, I don't, we're probably a couple of miles from the Berkshire border, mm-hmm. right up near Newbury, as you say. And why have we come here today, Andy? Well, it's a lovely one, as you say. We've come here to talk to the ranger here about ancient trees. This site is only about 25 hectares, so it's quite a small woodland, but it's really nice. We're stood right in the middle and I can't hear any cars. Yeah, I can hear a bit of bird song in the background. Well, not song this time of year, actually. It's probably just birds calling. There's a little bit of breeze in the trees. It's actually quite tranquil here, isn't it? It is very tranquil. Yes, so we're going to be looking at some of the special trees in the woodland here with the help of one of the site rangers. Hi, Dave. Hi, Andy. We've been talking to some of the members of staff who've been around donkeys years, but you're quite a new boy, aren't you? I am. I am the new boy around here. Um, I joined the team in January, Um, but I have been hanging around a few years. I did my work experience with this team in 2018, so uh, just about finished three years. Because, I mean, that's quite a difficult way for some people to come into the service, you know, um, and volunteering is a big thing. Working as work experience and volunteering is a good way to get into this sort of job, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think volunteer experience is uh, really crucial. So um, I offered a couple of days a week to the team and they, they gladly took it. And that really helped me get some of the skills needed for my, my first job. So we're here to look at this, um, some of these ancient trees. Are, they, are these ancient trees or these veteran trees? How do we define this? I think I'd call them veteran trees. Um, it's, it's hard to say. I think uh, whether something's ancient or not is a little bit subjective. Um, uh, they don't necessarily have to be really old to be ancient um, but in terms of veteran trees they're kind of approaching the the kind of the latter stage of their life and they're showing some certain characteristics which you might associate with, with veteran trees and there's a difference to be made between veteran veteran and ancient trees and ancient woodland isn't there yeah that's that's absolutely right so trees can be old but um, the woodland itself can be old without the trees being old within it if you like so ancient woodland is defined by woodland that's been around since um, at least 1600 Mm. in the UK and I think it's uh, 1750 in Scotland Um, but those trees might not be old within the wood so that that wood might be actively managed and trees might be being felled and regrown or uh, other things may have happened but as long as it's been continuous woodland for that period it's it's classed as ancient woodland. But there's some indicators in ancient woodlands that that it's ancient which is helpful because clearly we haven't got records going back over 400 years in some cases have we? Yeah that's right so you're kind of reliant uh, to look around and get some clues. One of the clues is is what we're seeing in front of us today is some of these old um, boundaries, ditch and bank boundaries that people used to to dig um, to mark out the the uh, outskirts of their land. Um, one of the other things might be the plants you find in the wood. So yeah. there, there are loads of interesting plants, um, things like primroses or uh, wood sorrel or bluebells, things like that, that are ancient woodland indicators. And if you find a, a clump of those together or a section, you might be looking at uh, an ancient woodland. And they're always a good indicator because it's gone over most of the plants we're looking at in terms of ancient woodland indicators. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I can just about see there's some, is it Enchanter's Nightshade? Yes, I believe it is, yeah. Um, and there's a bit of, Dog's mercury over there. Mm-hmm. The bluebells will have virtually all disappeared by yep. now. They're all underground, just the bulbs, aren't they? So <laughs> there's nothing right, left yeah. of bluebells tends to be this time of yeah. year. Yeah, and we've got lots of wild garlic over that side as well, which often you find with bluebells. And when you look at, I mean, it, as, say, as you say, it shows that the wood itself has been here that long because all these plants take that long to develop 
You won't find those in a new woodland, will That's you? That's right, yeah, they're, they're slow colonisers. So if they're here, then the woodland has been here for a long time. And actually looking, because as you say, we've got a big boundary bank. It's, a, it's called a wood bank, isn't it, it's quite often? Yeah. Um, so it's dividing this bit up. I think we own both sides, don't we? We do, but historically uh, this was two different parts of uh, land. So what happens is uh, someone will dig a ditch and they will put the spoil up on their side of the land to, to define it. And then they sometimes plant trees along that bank or they self-seed along that bank and, and it leaves this kind of mark within the woodland that mm. gives you a clue as to the history. And actually looking across to the, the far side, which is probably what we're calling secondary woodlands, that's woodland that's grown up on its own or it's, I don't think it's been planted this bit, it's grown up, it probably wouldn't have been a field over there. Yeah. The trees themselves that are growing there don't look much different to the ones on this bit, which is probably ancient woodland. Yeah. So it depends how it was historically managed. Um, there is a, a building back there called uh, something to do with kiln or kiln yard. So there may have been some stuff grown here for firewood, um, for firing things or whatever. So it may be that they've come in here and taken a bit more as well. It's hard to know exactly where uh, the boundary sometimes is. But um, yeah, it's, I'm not sure whether this section we're in here now is ancient woodland. Some of this was part of an old estate. Um, so it was a, a large field and there is records at some point of this being ploughed. So it has actually come back more like secondary woodland, even yeah. if perhaps it was ancient woodland originally, it might have been felled and then ploughed for a while. But what is really obvious are these really spectacular oaks Yeah, we've got on the bank itself. Yeah, this, 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 is, this is what we came to see really. These, uh, there's a row of six or seven of them really defined in the wood, They're quite obvious when you walk past them. Um, and they're displaying loads of great characteristics of trees that are, have been here a long time and are starting to become veteran. And actually we can hear this at the moment. Hear the tapping up there? Yeah. That's probably a nut hatch. We've just heard a nut hatch. Hopefully it might have been picked up on the, on the recording going choop, 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 choop. There he is, there's a nut hatch up. Yeah, I can see that him. branch up there hacking away. Yeah, that's right. And they're like little tiny woodpeckers, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. It's lovely to see a nut hatch. And you only get those in really established woodland and they love this sort of tree because Absolutely. i mean perhaps we better describe this as i say it's a it's a large oak we've got in front of us yeah it, it's large it's on, on the bank so it's kind of roots are, are gripping around the side of the bank um, it's got a, a kind of initially a, a tall quite wide thick trunk and then it, it stretches out as you'd imagine a, a good shaped oak tree to do but the lower branches are starting to die back there's deadwood here some branches have fallen off and it's getting some gnarled kind of characteristics in places. How far around do you think that trunk is? I reckon it's about four meters around. And that's one way of aging these trees is by measuring the circumference of what we call breast height, yeah. which is basically the middle of the chest. I mean, I think my chest is a little bit lower than most people's, <laughs> um, but... Um, Carly's hugging the tree now to show us. <laughs> <laughs> it's about three hugs, two and a half hugs, three hugs, something like that. And, um, but that varies because you can get really, really good ground Mm -hmm. which is very good for tree growth yeah which can give you a big fat tree exactly. in no time well I say no time in tree time no tree time, time tree time, time <laughs> is uh, you know a couple of centuries yeah and yet you could have really poor ground when the same age tree wouldn't be anywhere as big as that but there are some formulas for working that out aren't there there are it depends there's lots of places you can look and they don't always agree but yeah to find to find the dbh you've got to take the circumference and divide it by pi and then you've got the diameter and then you times it by a growth factor or, yeah. and each tree species have, has a different growth factor um, <laughs> with oaks they say about one and a half to two and a half centimeters a year they put on um, but obviously the only way to really tell is to cut it down and count the rings 
which but we don't I, want to do in I this case. I think I get into trouble. But I think it's safe to say that's probably several centuries old, isn't I it? I think so. I think it's between two and three hundred years. Yeah. And it's looking up, you say there's plenty of dead wood in there. Yep. Um, there's, I mean, the tree down to our left, actually, there's another one there. It's got this big, looks like a big knuckle halfway up, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. That's like a very large canker. It's almost like a disorder or a, a genetic change in the tree, a bit like a wart or something that we might have. Um, but it creates its whole, another kind of little ecosystem way up there in the tree. And it's a big ball of wood that sticks out from the trunk. That looks about, it could be up to five, six foot in diameter. Though, mm, it? It's really big, that one, isn't it? It's quite interesting. <laughs> Definitely an interesting feature of that tree. Oh, that's one thing. Actually, when you when you do have to fill some of these trees, a wood turner would actually be crying out for that. Oh yeah. Because those really patterned bowls that they turn. Yeah. Quite often, it's from those sort of uh, cankers, isn't it? Yeah, highly prized. That and, and some of the root systems they like, yeah. so they can actually get it on their <laughs> on yeah. their lathe. <laughs> but some of the characteristics of a because I say you you get an old tree, then it becomes a veteran. So there's no age definition, is there? No. Uh, and then it turns in. It doesn't turn, it becomes, yeah. as it gets older, into an ancient tree. So how would we try and describe an ancient tree, do you think? What are the characteristics? Well, I mean, sometimes people refer to ancient trees simply by their age. They say, for example, with oak and, and yew, uh, very long-lived species. Oaks are said to um, grow for 300, rest for 300, and die for 300. Yeah. That's one of the phrases. So if you're looking at something that's sort of above 600 years old, you might say, well, that's an ancient oak. Um, but that doesn't necessarily uh, hold true for other species so you could have much younger trees that you'd still class as ancient within their own time span so the things you'd be looking at in, a, in an ancient tree is it kind of uh, sitting down as they call it or and retrenching its boughs so it kind of pulls in its branches to protect from the wind it puts a lot of that weight on uh, back around the the trunk around the girth quite often it's more about character than age actually because i've got a bit of a list in some things like a low fat and squat shape yep Leave it at that. Um, <laughs> the crown is retrenched, which means it actually withdraws in. You get dead bits sticking out beyond the, the leaves. That's isn't right, it? yeah. Uh, wide trunk compared with others of the same species. Hollowing of the trunk. Yeah, I think that's important. Uh, trees begin as the deadwood inside begins to hollow out. The, the, the actual, it's still living around the outside in the sapwood and the cambium layer, but the heartwood of the tree begins to decay. Some of the fungus starts to attack that and that ends up as a sort of fantastic habitat for those uh, creatures who like deadwood. And that's it, and that's not always apparent from the outside. It is, as you say, the, the bark and just underneath the bark is the proper living part of the tree. That's right. So although that tree's got a lot of mass and in there and it's probably several, well, more than several cubic metres of wood in there, yeah. the heartwood is dead. Yes, it? it is, yeah. That's where the tree sort of stores its dead cells uh, and that's really what gives it its structure. Yeah. It's like a dead column of, of those very dense cells that basically give wood its strength. And actually some of the, I mean, do you remember the 87 storm? Uh, you know, I was young. You were young, yeah, I wasn't quite so young. <laughs> um, but that big, what some called the hurricane coming through the southeast of England, quite often it was the older hollow trees which survived, mm -hmm. which stood up. Because actually a cylinder, a hollow cylinder, is stronger than a solid rod. Interesting, yeah. Because uh, it can flex more. So yeah. part, you know, hollowing out the middle is great for wildlife, clearly you owls and bats and all sorts of insects living in there. Yeah. Um, but also it helps the tree stand up and survive longer. Yeah. Um, because it's got that structural strength. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And actually we did notice something interesting on the base of this tree, didn't we? Yeah, let's go and have a look. So this is a, a bright red fungus coming out of very near the base on, on kind of one of the roots. 
Um, and fungus is, is an interesting, has an in interesting relationship with trees. It can be sort of good and bad. Yeah. Um, but the trees use fungus and, and fungi use the tree. And we think that one's probably an early uh, beefsteak fungus, which is quite common on oaks. Um, and, but that, that fungus feeds on the deadwood of the tree. So because it's very old around the outside, that, that part of the tree is probably just thick enough to support that fungus. It's actually dead in there anyway, so it's not doing the tree any harm. Uh, and that fungus actually is the, because quite often in the heartwood of oak, and really valuable oak, it's darker wood, isn't it? Yeah. It's right. that brown, because the, the more living outside bit is quite pale. It's a more darker wood inside the tree a lot of that colour quite often is from being infected with that fungus. Right. So it actually makes the tree, in terms of timber, more, more valuable. valuable. Mm, interesting. Um, and it's called beefsteak fungus because actually when it's more mature, I mean that's quite, it looks like a funny little lump of red putty has been stuck on there, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it quite does. beautiful. But, it is, yeah. But it comes up and it's like a big plate of, uh, as you might expect, like a bracket fungus. That's right, it looks like a steak. And actually when you cut it open, it looks like raw steak. Yeah. And you can eat it. You can eat it. It's not supposed to be as good as eating. No. And there's another species which is sometimes getting. It's called chicken of the woods. That's right. Yeah. And that's bright yellow, quite a bit further up. But that supposedly is very good eating. Yeah. People often collect that. Yeah. Um, so you say it's characteristics, not signs, which dictates whether it's something ancient and veteran, isn't it? Yeah. You... Exactly. I think so. And you start to sort of look at trees differently and, and appreciate their what's happening in it and start to judge what those characteristics are. You just get a sense of what, what a normal, you know, quote unquote, oak looks like. And then what one that is starting to get a little bit older looks like. And you can see these, these kind of uh, the sections are, that are kind of getting larger around the edge. Um, sometimes the tree puts on a bit of a life ring, like a, a growth belt around it as it kind of sits down to help it help support itself in its later years. And of course you, you have some trees that are smaller Overall, the species a bit like a thing like uh, one of my favourites, field maple. Mm. Um, but it doesn't stop them becoming veteran. No, you know, they're a lot smaller, but they'll have the hollow in the middle. They'll have shorter and squatter than others of their type. So you can find veteran trees in all different types of trees, can't you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we say oak might live for nine hundred, or that, that's quite rare. A field maple might live, you know, for just two or three hundred, and so it veteranizes a lot quicker and that's helpful to all those species that rely on that so you need that that mix of species within the wood uh, and some trees you know like silver birch are very fast growing and so they often veteranize very early maybe mm. within 50 years or so yeah yeah and actually looking at some of the things living on so we've got the fungus there yeah there's actually a, i mean we're looking a couple of foot up on the side of the tree and there's actually a row in it <laughs> Mountain ash just yeah. growing on the side of the tree. Exactly. I think that the, this is I've seen this before, where the, uh, the, the the kind of depth of the bark is thick enough to support a little bit of soil, and and the tree just starts growing, and new species grow on the side of the other tree. And that's a some kind of a fern. Yeah, I'm very good at identifying ferns. We'll it's a beautiful a fern. fern, isn't it? Just, just a fern. Just a fern. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that. You get that up on the. Um, I can't see it on this tree, but on previous uh, other veterans I've seen, you get it all along the branches. You know, several meters up, ten meters up maybe. And so it's that interesting habitat that happens at height. Yeah. Which is also uh, something you don't get anywhere else. And this lovely crinkly bark is a good home for a lot of mosses. There's a whole. It's like a fur pelt here, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Loads of little things that will be living in here and beetles like to make their home here. You can see little bits of um, crumbly kind of uh, something what looks like earth, but it's sometimes insects burrowing into the bark there and pulling out little bits of wood. 
And there could be several hundred species of insect living in this one tree. Yeah, that's right. Oaks can sort of support up to about 400 species, I mm. think. Um, and as they get older, that only gets better. And we've been talking in previous podcasts about moths. I absolutely love moths. Okay. And there could be, you know, 50 species of moth on this one tree. Oh, really? Well, I didn't know that. So we were talking a little bit earlier about the little butterfly called a purple hair streak. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And they don't get seen too often at ground level because they live up in the tops of trees. Yeah. And at the right times of tr year, if you look up with a pair of binoculars, it's absolutely smothered with them. And so there are a lot of butterflies and moths, particularly moths, who live on the oak leaves. And because um, they're a good hunting ground for um, blue tits. Oh, right, okay. Now, blue tits only do one brood a year. But they quite often, they can have up to 22 eggs in one nest. Oh, wow. That's a bit of a record. I've seen a dozen, 14. Um, but they, t they need to time their emergence of their young to when the leaves are out and the caterpillars start feeding on the leaves. Right. It's very time critical. Yeah. They didn't do very well this year. Because okay. May was quite frosty, wasn't it? Yeah, very frosty. And the leaves coming out was quite late. Yes, it was. All the oaks were quite late. Um, which would have meant the caterpillars were quite late. Mm -hmm. um, and the trouble is the, the birds timed their, um, their nest making more to the light period. So they would have think, well, I, you know, I'll start building the nest in April time. I'll start laying my eggs in May. And then when the chicks hatch out, all those caterpillars will be up there. Right. But I think it was a bit mistimed and there's quite a lot of failures with, with uh, blue tits in particular this year. Yeah. Yeah, well, the weather can change a lot and the tree has to adapt to that as well. Mm. Uh, you know, different climates, some, some uh, years are very dry and some are very wet. And you can see that on evidence of the growth rings inside a tree once it's felled. Um, you get, you know, wide growth rings for those fast growing years. And then in periods of drought, they're all tightly close together. Um, but oaks and, and many, many trees are adapted to survive those types of conditions. Perhaps, you know, more than some of the shorter lived species like, like the blue tit can manage. Yeah, I mean, hopefully they, they should reschedule. I mean, it should be back a bit more to normal next year. Yeah. Um, uh, and the birds are built to survive this sort of variability. Yeah. Um, and that's why they produce so many young. In yeah. fact, they can produce 16 or more young from one nest. If they have a successful year, they have a very successful year. Right. And, you know, they get past all the sparrows and all the rest, and then those young will breed next year. Yeah. Uh, so they can cope with occasional years where it's a bit not too good for them. Uh, it's like everything everything fluctuates yeah exactly yeah oaks have a way of managing the the species around them by producing mast years of acorns i think last year we had a, a huge year of uh, of acorns and they flood the the environment with food for squirrels and uh, traditionally pigs um, and then they breed more and they produce more young the next year and then the oak doesn't produce anything the next year and so it starves that population it has a way of kind of self-limiting um, some of the predators it would have had for its uh, acorns yeah, you don't think of predators for oak trees, do you? <laughs> no. But actually, some, some of those, pre I mean, we talk about, uh, oh, there's a green woodpecker calling there. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, we talk about predators for oaks, but one of the most important species for oak trees is the jay. Yes, it's, it's said, I, I read something the other day, which is hard to believe, but 40% uh, of oaks are planted by jays. Yeah. Um, so they're a, a massive part of the, of the oak's life cycle. And they can, in one season, plant thousands of acorns. Absolutely, yeah. And, and obviously with them and the squirrels, um, uh, you know, oaks, that's why oaks are probably one of our most common and, and most well-loved trees. Well, I say they're planting. They don't, they're not trying to plant <laughs> oak trees. It's a side benefit. What it they're is. doing is they're caching 
which is storing food through the winter. Yeah. So they'll hide them in the ground. That's right. And then they'll, amazingly, they can remember where quite a lot of these are. Yeah. But sometimes you'll get one or two, uh, which, you know, the jay dies. So it doesn't go and pick those up again, or it just misses a few. And if you're talking about thousands of, uh, in one year, thousands of acorns coming off one tree. Yeah. You know, this, this tree here, we're saying it's four, three, four, five hundred years old. Yeah, three hundred, I think, probably, yeah. Um, how many, th I'm not going to do the maths, <laughs> but it could be millions of acorns they produce yeah. over their own lifetime. That's right, each tree, each oak tree like this can produce 10, 50,000 acorns, something like that, uh, each year. So, yeah, it's definitely in the millions. So they only need, really, to replace that one tree when it eventually falls over is one of those to be successful yeah absolutely thanks to the jays yeah absolutely and that's the thing isn't it because people talk about candidate veteran trees with trees which could become veteran every little sapling could be a veteran tree in the future i think so yeah it's a really good point to remember that uh, you know if we, if we allow them and if we're able to manage it like that then uh, then we can really restore some of the veterans that we've lost over the years yeah so we've moved a little bit further down here. We've got another two. They're not as big as the last one we looked at, but they are certainly substantial oak trees. Yeah, um, difficult to know. Well, you'd think that they were all part of the same age, but they've probably come and gone. Um, and you can see one next to us there that's fallen over. Yeah. So, yeah. And there is actually, is that a, what's that one in the middle? Well, initially I thought it was a birch, but not. It's, a, it's more like beech bark, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's dying, yes. isn't it? That it's is proper dead wood. It, it's, it's dead and it's resting on the tree. And so for now, we wouldn't um, do anything with that because it's, it's at the minute not in danger of falling on the path. And that, that dead wood at height is what's really valuable. Um, so you get different species of, of insects living up at different heights. Someone uh, once described it as a, a block of flats when you've got dead yeah. wood like that. Yeah. And when you've got, because we're all about that fallen one there, because that's clearly lying on the ground. Yeah. It's going to be damper the part of the wood's going to be damper um, and beetles in particular love that sort of tree. Yeah. The dry wood up there in the sun is good for other species of beetle but then you'll get species of wasp and bee coming nesting in there as well. Right. And they don't like the, the bees and wasps don't like the damp stuff, they like the dry sunny stuff. Yeah, yeah it's definitely a fantastic habitat to have and we try and keep that wherever we can. This is under under threat from uh, health and safety. Basically, we we fell a lot of uh, deadwood like that that are close to paths. Um, so, one thing we we can do with uh, veteran trees is they get a bit creative with their management. Perhaps there's a veteran tree that we think is really valuable. Well, we could maybe just reroute the path a little bit rather than yeah. fell the tree. You know, because there is a lot of deadwood, and that's part of the the um, value of these trees is the amount of deadwood within it. That's right. Because clearly, it's good for the insects to nest, you know, to breed in and feed on, but then the things like the natatches and the woodpeckers come along and eat them, don't they? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And deadwood is a really important part of, of all woodland. Uh, in the past it's been kind of cleared away sometimes. People thought it was messy, so they, they cleared it up and tidied it up, and now I think uh, it's gone back to understanding that it plays a, a valuable role as part of the ecosystem. And even though, I mean, we're standing on a path here, actually the chances of a lump of that falling off while we're standing here is pretty low. Yeah, it is. It's a very low used path. If this was in the middle of a major country park with loads of people with a bench underneath it. That's right. You'd probably have to think about, well, maybe move the bench. Yeah. 
But if somebody's sitting there for a couple of hours, exactly, they're more yeah. likely to get hit, aren't they? That's right, yeah. And uh, I'm responsible for tree safety in our team at the minute, so you have to make those kind of judgment calls. Um, but yeah, absolutely, you're looking at the use of the path. And if, if it's a bridal way or anything more major, then um, we have to take some of them down. But there's, there's normally enough that are left within the woodland that we, you know, no one's going near, so the, the deadwood habitat is still retained. So what other management, do you do, you do any other management to support the trees themselves? Uh, I think mostly for veteran trees you, you let them be because you know they're working on a different time scale um, but what we have done here, uh, it depends what situation you come across, um, there's been some clearance around the trees, sometimes that's called haloing, yeah. you, uh, you kind of fell a ring of younger trees that are starting to get in the way because um, some of the fast growing birch as we've said there's a birch right there that's probably only 40 years old or, or less um, so maybe even 20. Yeah. So uh, that's starting to interfere with the oak. So you, you might think at some point of felling that. Um, but veteran trees are a bit like, you know, uh, as we all get older, you want to do things a little bit at a slower pace. So you don't want to do everything all at once. Yeah. You, you know, you might want to do something one year and then leave it a little bit, see how the tree responds and then do something in another two or three years after that. And let's think some of these trees, if you had a camera up above on a drone looking down, you'd be able to see the pattern a bit more. But that veteran tree there, it's almost taking up a space as wide as it is tall, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. It's got a massive width, hasn't it? Um, so they do need that space. And oaks don't love it when other trees start touching the tips of their branches. So they, 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 like, they like space to stretch out, especially at that age. So um, and there are some species, I think like beech in particular, the leaves they drop contain toxins which suppress growth around it. So right. it stops other things growing around it. Yeah. So you've got all these young whippersnapper trees trying to grow up and it will actually suppress them, won't it? Yeah, you can see that when you go into a beech wood, it's much more, uh, there's, there's hardly any understory there, is yeah. there as you walk in, a lot of leaves, but no other small trees. Whereas here, we've got lots more bramble and holly in particular grows well here. So I think some of these you can see are very young holly, so they've been uh, felled or cut before. And there's a couple of big hollies that we took out or have been taken out uh, next to that large oak, just to give it a little bit more space. And again, the thing with beech is they, the leaves themselves, when you look up, I can see little gaps of light through the leaves here. You don't often see that in beech woods because they, they, they effectively, all the leaves work together to block out, light out entirely, That's almost. Right, yeah, they say um, it's a 98% coverage or something. Yeah, and then you have something like ash, which lets even more light through than this, and that's quite important for things underneath, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. You want, you want light to be getting through to the ground. So we talked about those, those ancient woodland plants, and there are lots of other plants that benefit from those pools of light hitting the floor. And it's, sometimes it's only when a tree like that falls over you realise the big gap in the canopy it fills. Absolutely, and that's part of the, of the natural process of, of the woodland. These old trees um, eventually fall over, and they create a big space that other trees come to, to colonise. And you, I've seen it crab wood near Winchester where it's, it's, you've got big beech trees like this and the entire beech is foot split open and opened up that huge gap in the canopy and then suddenly everything underneath it is going, oh, light. Yeah. And they go whoopee and shoot upwards, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the... And there's often young beech next to an old beech like that that are just waiting for that moment yeah. and they, they take advantage and shoot up. And quite often you can tell a difference between a tree that's grown up in a forest as opposed to one that's cut in a field. That's right, and I think that's what we're seeing here. When you talked about how wide that is, that gives an indication of, of why perhaps there was more space here in the past and how this might be secondary woodland. Yeah. Um, trees that grow in forest are you know, bunched up together and so they, they shoot up towards the light and end up very narrow and have a narrow crown. Whereas with a, ones with in, a bushy top. That's right, yeah. yeah. 
and you see these ones in like in a farmer's field or in a big open space that are the kind of classic view of a tree we might think of or an oak where it's, it's wide and tall as well. Yeah, low spreading branches. I mean, these ones are coming out almost uh, horizontally sideways on this, that, that original tree we looked at. And it's quite a lovely tree, isn't it? It's beautiful, yeah. I think it's a really nice example. So even though you, this is clearly in a woodland now, yeah. That's a fair indication that it was more open around here when it first started growing. Absolutely. When you often with sort of woodland, um, uh, they, they sometimes call it woodland archaeology when you're, you're looking mm. for clues and signs. And if you've got this bank, uh, you've got this row of trees, you've got a big tree that's open, you, everything's pointing to this was different in the past. And you have to try and work out what was here before. And do we want to restore that or are we happy with how things are going now? Yeah, it's always decisions about this sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, there is quite a bit of holly here, isn't there? Yeah, you see. yeah there is. Uh, so some's been felled, um, but yeah, holly is pretty fast growing. And um, But you know, those holly trees can be, a, can be ancient trees as well. So you want to try and keep a good mix of things without letting it take over. And they're actually quite an indicator of ancient wood bank because they will grow. I mean, just looking, there's not much holly behind us. No. It is pretty much concentrated around the bank. And believe it or not, although it's quite well known that holly is quite spiny mainly mm. um, it's a great forage plant you know for um, if you get into the new forest where there's lots of um, those semi-wild ponies and cattle down there sometimes if they hear a chainsaw going in the winter they'll come running because if somebody's chopping down a holly they can get to those growing tips again and they'll eat it mm -hmm. um, and it was kept as a forage plant on some of the wood banks right uh, for animals to graze on in the winter because they could just chop it down and they'd eat the leaves and yeah. You know, so it can be an indicator of the age of the bank again. Oh, right, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. And that, that sort of brings us to talking about the pollarding of trees that, uh, that people used to do as management. If you um, cut down a tree, uh, if it's one of our native broadleaf species, it often regrows and, pr and produces more timber for you. And um, if you cut that down at ground level, it's called coppicing. Yeah. Uh, and if you cut that down um, above head height, it's called pollarding. And so you see this um, kind of history again playing out. You might see old trees that look very, have very big wide trunks, but very small stems coming off. And that's, mm. an, that's an example that's been coppiced or pollarded. And they used to do that to protect against uh, deer and other animals foraging for food on the, on the young um, buds that would come out from the coppice stalls. Mm. So on an old bank like this, uh, they'd sometimes pollarded um, to stop deers uh, restricting the growth of the oak again. Because the reason you coppice stuff is to get growth of the same age. So you can, you can coppice a stool down. It doesn't work with pine because it stops it growing entirely. But most, as you say, the, the normal native, what we call deciduous trees, the ones that, leaves, that lose their leaves in the winter, they will regrow from the stump again. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and then you can leave it on a coppice cycle for seven up to 21 years, depending on how big you want those stems to come out again. That's right. Um, so if you're after um, what they call spars or the, basically quite often they get staples for holding thatch down there because that's quite thin stems they need. Yeah. So that might be a seven, eight year cycle and they should all be the same age. So you'll go along in eight years, cut them all down, use them for your thatching and just let it grow again. Exactly. Yeah. And if you do that in rotation in different places in the wood each year, you've got a constant wood supply. And that's pretty much how our woods were managed over the last uh, you know, number of centuries. Um, so you can now, some of that has now uh, make, make way for other, other manufacturing processes. So all this is kind of left and you've got coppice stalls that are starting to become uh, very old. Hmm. 
And pollarding basically is shifting that coppice stool up the tree, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Out of the reach of grazing animals. Exactly. And it was thought, there were some suggestions of why it's at a certain height. I've heard some people say, it's, well, it's at the height you can swing an axe above your head and still chop them off without going up the tree. <laughs> right. I'm not sure if I believe that. Yeah, but I don't know if I want to. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a classic with the willow sometimes where you get next to a river, you get a, a stump with little tiny branches coming out the top and that's been that's right. pollarded. Yeah. It's a bit difficult sometimes because these, that one there looks like it could have been pollarded. Yeah, it but is But some difficult. of those stems at the top are probably 80, 90 years old. Yeah. Um, so it's not clearly pollarded, but... Uh, no, it isn't clear. I, I wondered about that one at the end, but I, I'm not sure it is. That one looks more like natural growth, that one, yeah, doesn't exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think a lot of this is natural. Sometimes it's more obvious to see, especially like you say with those willows that are very fast growing and they make very long, thin branches, so it's easy to see. Hmm. And we've got hazel in front of us as well, so we could talk about that. But. Yeah, Travis, people see hazel and think coppice. Right. So you want to but they self-coppice because they get to a certain size. Clearly they can cope with lower light levels than most tree species because they don't get that tall. And eventually they will just fall over on their own. Yeah. Um, but quite often what you'll, at a coppice stall, it'll be several feet across, mm. not just one, out of one little tiny base. Um, there could, there's a hint of a couple of coppice stalls over there, but I don't think it's long established coppice cycle here. No. Yeah, that's quite a beauty, that one. That Isn't has it? been, don't know whether it's been coppiced or whether it's no. just been cut down at I some point it's and it's been grown and, up. And or maybe one thing fell at some point and yeah. So we've really got nice, loads of intertwining trunks out of a so the base actually if you look at the base that is bigger than the big tree we started off with yeah it is but a lot of these stems if you separate them out look like a reasonable size tree on its own right don't yeah, they yeah yeah they're probably 100 years on their yeah. own but they're um, twisted you can see where they fuse back into each other yeah over it's, there. it's an incredible tree isn't it yeah it's like a maze a puzzle and it's full of hollows and full of holes yeah, it's really hard to describe. It's, wish you could see it on the podcast, but uh, you can see right through sections of it. Um, it's like trees that have rooted with like two feet, um, gripping each other and intertwining. So it's, it's quite remarkable what happens when you coppice trees. And it looks like, because this is an odd bit, you've got a hole at the base here and this polished bit of bark. And I do wonder whether the Sanam animal over the centuries have been going over this bit and just wearing it, you know, badger belly, maybe. Yeah. Right, I think we're going to go to another bit of the wood to find a nice lime tree, is it? Yeah. Yeah, let's right, go and yeah. look at that one, shall we? So we've come up to another tree you brought us up to. This is a, what, what tree is this one? This is a, a lime, a large leaf lime. Are we do we know why it's a large leaf lime? Yeah, it's got big leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble right. is, these hybridise. And I can't remember what the difference is. I think it's got a downy leaf underneath. It's um, the colour in the little joints of the veins underneath the leaf, whether it's a white tuft of hairs or whether it's an orange tuft of hairs. Oh, right. So you get the small leaf lime, which is a really indicator of ancient woodland. And some of the best woods in Hampshire, you know, down the coast and that are small leaf limes in there. You get the large leaf lime and then you get the hybrid between the two. And I can't remember what colour the tufts are under the leaves, so I couldn't tell you right now, but it certainly is an impressive tree though, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. Uh, this, as we were talking about coppicing, this is an example of a tree that's been coppiced. Um, and as a result, the, the main uh, trunk, if you like, which they call the stool, is, is really big. And then you get all these smaller offshoots coming up it. 
And it's far bigger than that oak at the base, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's got to be probably five or six metres around. And actually it's got, because you say it's a bit difficult, it's not two trees growing together. It does look like one tree. Yeah, I'm not sure about this offshoot. I don't know what that but is. But it looks like it's connected. It might be a branch has fallen and then regrown and then formed that one there. Um, and the, the ground, because we've got, there's not a lot growing under here, is that? Because there's not a lot of light coming through this one in particular, is there? No. But you've got these roots. Exposed. Look like snakes worming their way through, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're as big as my leg. Yeah. Going off in all directions. And that's the thing, the, the roots underneath the tree go out as far, generally, as the canopy goes out above. That's right, yeah. People often confuse that when they're looking at trees in their own you know, streets and driveways. They can concrete all the way around up to the trunk. Yeah. Um, but actually the roots go way out up to the, what they call the drip line of the tree. Yeah. And uh, they need just as much soil and light and air as, as the rest of the tree. And there's ferns and bracken and um, bramble around outside the canopy, but there's almost a cut-off line where the canopy sits, yeah. everything starts growing again. Yeah, and these branches are almost touching the ground all the way around. It's a beauty, isn't it? And it must be 20 metres across the canopy. Must at least, yeah. Yeah. But if we look at the tree itself, it looks like a bundle of about, how many, eight? Yeah. Each look could be a tree on its own, but I think, as you say, that tree was cut down at the base, probably looking at some of the size of the, the bits that have grown up, probably 80, 900 years ago. I think so. And then all these stems have come growing out of that one, from this beautiful big dome of leaves, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then there's a question of what someone does in the future. Do you cut it again and let it grow again? Or is this the, was that the final cut? Well, this is it, because part of the problem is that these big ones on the outside in particular are eventually under their own weight, topple out and rip a bit out. That's but right. then that's part of the natural processes, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, if they rip out, then they can cause uh, you know, an open wound that, that fungi can get in and that can be the end of the tree. If you cut them, you can control that. So it's often the case that people ask sometimes why, why we cut down trees. Um, sometimes it's a case that we're just coppicing and it actually yeah. extends the life of the tree. But I mean, some of these old trees and veteran trees, there's all sorts of practice there. You go to some trees where they've got props to hold the branches up. And even if there's a hole, they've filled it full of concrete <laughs> or capped it off with lead, you know? And I do wonder in the future, somebody comes along and says, what did they, you know, <laughs> you'll do what you think's best. And so what was he thinking? Yeah. You know, this is barbarous, you know? Yeah. So it is a bit of big decisions to be made here, isn't it? I think, because we've lost a lot of that woodland management skill and our lives are lived at a different pace than these trees so you know things that are a hundred years ago seem like a long time to some to some people uh, to most of us um, but perhaps the last thing that happened to this tree was a hundred years ago and and it, something else needs to happen soon or you take the view as in some of the rewilding principle what they sometimes call self-willed nature mm -hmm. you just let it do what it wants to do yeah that's right and be be comfortable with that yeah so exactly. there's one of the many decisions you have to make as a land manager isn't it yeah, are you going to actively manage or sort of passively manage? It's a beautiful tree though, anyway. Absolutely stunning. Well, thanks for joining around, Dave. It's been a really interesting visit and it's lovely to see some of these absolutely spectacular trees. I really enjoyed it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me along. So there really are some great trees here. This lime that we're stood under at the moment 
is it's like being in a church, like being in a cathedral. It is. It's absolutely spectacular, isn't it? You know, you've got these massive columns coming up here and this, the branches dipping down virtually to the ground all around. You feel really protected in here, don't you? Yeah, it's like a magic little circle. And you can go and find your own ancient trees and veteran trees as well. Because um, I talked about, you know, the characteristics of an ancient tree, but that structure and the size and the fact it's reduced in height and deadwood. So you can go online and search for the Ancient Tree Forum. They'll tell you about ancient trees around the country. And actually, if you want to go and search for yourself, um, you can find one if you think it's ancient or veteran and then put it on their databases. So that's a really good way of finding some of the history of the land. And we've got some quite cool ancient trees actually in Hampshire. Yeah, there's some really spectacular ones, aren't there? Now, one of the trees that is one of the longest growing ones and we quite often see as an ancient tree is yew. Yeah, and I've seen some really good ones. Quite often they're in churchyards, aren't they? Yeah. Because alongside ancient and veteran trees, you get a thing called champion trees as well. Do you know much about them? So champion trees are generally the biggest or best specimen of that tree. So it's not necessarily the oldest or the, the rarest, but it's a good specimen of that tree. And we have a lot of champion trees at Hilliers, yeah, Arboretum. Yeah, because they planted all sorts of non-natives as well, mm -hmm. alongside some of the natives. And they've got some of the finest specimens there, haven't they? Yeah, and that's what a champion tree is, a good tree specimen. So one of the oldest trees in Hampshire is the Farringdon yew and that is nearly 3,000 years old. But it's not quite as old as the Fortingale year, is it? No, that's up in Scotland, and I've actually been to that one. Um, and that's supposed to be 4,000 years old, I think. And it's amazing wow. what's gone on in that lifespan. Mm -hmm. You know, the Romans have come and gone. You know, the Saxons have invaded. Um, so it's quite unbelievable, almost, that somebody's lived that long. I do wish that trees could tell stories because I think they'd have some fantastic stories to tell about all the people that have passed by them or sat underneath them for some shade or had their lunch sitting underneath them. So, are you ready for another one of Carly's fun facts, Andy? Have I got a choice, Carly? No. <laughs> so, although trees look passive and helpless because they can't move, they can't run away from things, they are actually a lot savvier than they seem. So some trees produce chemicals to combat leaf-eating insects and some also send airborne chemical signals to each other, warning nearby trees to prepare for an insect attack. Yep, so you can get this tree here, might well have a caterpillar hatch out on it and start eating mm -hmm. and then the leaf will react going, oh, I'm being attacked and release the chemical. And then that can tell the rest of the leaves on the tree that you need to start producing some t nasty stuff. Yep because we're going to get eaten. And as you say, it can trigger other trees to do the same as yep. well, which is quite amazing, isn't it? They've done quite a lot of research and they focused on apple trees coming under attack by caterpillars and they release chemicals that actually attract caterpillar eating birds to those trees. Fantastic, isn't it? They are fantastic. They're not just a lump of wood. And looking at this lime tree, as I say, there's not a lot of growing in it, which I think is partly because all the light, light's cut out by the leaves up above. But you do sometimes find that the leaves fall, they give out toxic chemicals which suppress the growth of anything underneath it. Beech do that a lot, don't they? Oh yeah, beech notorious. Beech woods are generally pretty bland underneath, not mm -hmm. a lot of undergrowth. Um, and it's just, they're dominating that woodland. Yeah. Survival of the fittest. 
I hope you've all enjoyed this episode of Looking After Nature. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts, or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Let us know by checking out our social media pages. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time.